Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. I've got a different kind of episode for you tonight. For the first time, I'm focusing on the speakeasy part of the audiobook speakeasy instead of the audiobook part. This is a free episode, no charge to my patrons over on Patreon, though I do greatly appreciate their financial support, which makes this show possible, especially my martini-level sponsors, Squeaky Cheese Productions and David Stever's Raven Rain, narrated by Bill Lord, which was just released on Audible a few days ago. I know that my generous supporters are very interested in the audiobook industry, and since I only touch on audiobooks lightly with my guest tonight, I didn't think it was right to charge my supporters for it. I do hope you'll enjoy the episode as much as I did, though, especially my guest's thoughts on owning and running a small business. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about cocktails. My guest tonight is a fellow podcaster, a fellow cocktail enthusiast, an entrepreneur, and the CEO of Modern Bar Cart. Eric Koslick, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, this is kind of a different show for the audiobook speakeasy. Um, I found your podcast six months or a year ago. I don't even remember when it was. I'm, I'm not sure where I heard about it, but... Um, I thought I got to check that out. I mean, I'm a proprietor of a speakeasy, you know, I should, I should know more about the industry. So I found it, fell in love with it right away. I think that the first episode I listened to was, um, I think it was the, uh, the death of smooth, maybe, uh, about whiskey. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a good one. That's like one of my, my like deep dive audio essay ones. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it was great. And I thought, oh, I'm really interested. And I love the interviews that you have. Uh, I'm following uh, Elaine Duff now. Uh, Elaine, is that right? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, she's she's great. The the news that she has is uh, really interesting. Um, and uh, she just posted something on Instagram recently. A uh, She was having a rum Negroni. And I thought, I'm going to have to try one of those now. <laughs> so yeah, learning a lot of stuff, uh, really enjoying it and, uh, and all the, all the cocktail culture that goes along with it. So thanks a lot for taking the time. No, again, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, it was obviously it was sort of a, a cold outreach from you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I dabble a little bit in, in audiobook listening, but I was, uh, just delighted, uh, for the for the opportunity to kind of stretch myself, kind of cross genres a little bit, and it's always great to collaborate with somebody who's doing great work in the audio space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Eric, so since this is a speakeasy, what are you drinking tonight? I am. Well, it's fitting that you mentioned the Negroni. I think you know the Negroni <laughs> is it, it's a beautiful format for I think a long form interview show because you know if if you dilute it correctly, you put it on a nice big rock and uh, you know you get your citrus garnish kind of languishing in there giving all the you know the the bright oily goodness that it has to give then right. it can it can really last you for a long form interview and that's kind of what we have in front of us here so i know you're a big negroni fan uh this particular expression is actually a mezcal negroni um ah. for folks out there who might not be familiar with the format it's um it's an equal parts cocktail which is always a fascinating thing because like when do you ever see a cake recipe that's just equal parts everything? <laughs> pound, pound cake, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, that's maybe I should look into the pound cake. That could be <laughs> an episode. Um, but uh, I'm not a baker. It's too much science for me. But in terms of mixology, the, the, the Negroni is equal parts, generally gin, Campari, which is a uh, bitter Italian aperitivo, and then sweet vermouth. And uh, so what I have here is uh, equal parts mezcal, a uh, sort of a pretty middle of the road espadine called Bagnez, uh, along with a West Coast U.S. aperitivo uh, called Bruto Americano. It's it's made by oh, St. George, George Spirits. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't tried that one yet, but I've got a friend who's got some and she said it was really good. It's super piney. Um, hmm. I actually, I actually have an interview, um, probably right before you started listening, or maybe just briefly after that, because it was Lance Winters. I actually went and interviewed him this past February when I was um, going to do some spirits judging for the American Distilling Institute over um, in Tiburon, which is sort of across the bay from San Francisco. So along the way, because my wife. Uh, works for a company that has offices in LA and and uh, Orange County. I try to extend my stay a little bit, get a little bit of that West Coast life, and and get some of those interviews in that I wouldn't otherwise get a chance to. And I had a chance to get out to St. George and interview Lance Winters. And although the audio quality, you know, since we're in audiobooks land, is is not great when you're in a <laughs> uh, tin manufacturing Air Force hangar nice. or, or like Navy <laughs> hangar, I guess they 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 own this company. They sold off a company called Hangar One Vodka, um, and these these distilleries are right next to one another, literally housed in these military hangars. So, yeah. uh, with that and all the distilling equipment, it wasn't the best audio I've ever captured. But I'll tell you, it was one of the best interviews I think I've ever done. So, um, I'll, yeah, I'll look I, for that. I'll look for that. Highly recommend the um, the Bruto Americano, and then in terms of the sweet vermouth in here, it's uh, it's a pretty accessible bottle called Donlan Donlan Rouge, oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, and a uh, little grapefruit twist. So, how about you, Rich? Nice. Well, I'm joining you in a cocktail. Yeah, we've nobody can see this, but we got the video going, so I'll pull it up there. Uh, this is actually a, a creation of my own um, that I invented for my wife. Uh, she was. If I remember correctly, she was visiting her sister, and so I was alone that night. Uh, her sister lives in Wyoming. We live in Tucson, so you know she was staying overnight over there for a few days. And so I got out the graduated cylinder that she uh, she got me for Christmas about three, four, I think it was about three years ago, which is great for inventing cocktails because you can have like many precise versions, and um, and you don't you can have like three before you've had like one full drink. And so you can try a lot of different variations. So I thought I'm going to try something. And, uh, I had a, a bottle of ginger brandy that I'd had for years and years. And I thought, what the hell can I do with this? So, uh, so I made up this drink. Uh, it's probably the most complex drink I've made up, uh, with the, the largest number of ingredients, I think. And it's one of those drinks where if I see it online on liquor.com or I run across somebody and they say they had something and a bartender tells me what they made, I think I'm never going to make that. I don't have these ingredients. And it's one of those drinks, but I just happen to have all these ingredients. And so I, I, I put them together. So it's, uh, it's an ounce and a half of gin, preferably a floral gin, I'm using Hendrix today, um, which isn't, I don't really think of that as a super floral gin. If I had my druthers, if I had a bottle, I'd be using uh, Nolet Silver. Um, but uh, but I had this on hand and it's got a little bit of that rose thing. So, uh, so an ounce and a half of gin, uh, an ounce of ginger brandy, 
It's a, it's a big drink. So, you know, I've got eight ounce cocktail glasses and the wash line is pretty high on this one. Wash line term I learned from you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so an ounce and a half of gin, ounce of ginger brandy, an ounce of creme de violette, a, uh, an ounce of lemon juice, two teaspoons of Montmorency tart cherry concentrate, which mm-hmm. is something a lot of people don't just happen to have on hand, but my wife found it at Whole Foods at one point and brought it home and said, maybe you could make a cocktail out of this. I don't know. So I tried to, I've actually made a few and, and they came out well. A couple dashes of cranberry bitters and just uh, half half an ounce. I actually used a little bit less today of um, simple syrup because it's already got quite a bit of sweet stuff in there. And this is way more sugar than I normally drink. I normally go towards martini, Manhattan, things that are much less sweet. But I thought, this would be a good episode to highlight one of the things that I I came up with. So, so I call this the ginger and Marianne. I'm a guy of a certain age and, uh, spent a lot of time watching Gilligan's Island back when I was a kid. I thought it's got ginger, it's got the floral for, uh, for a little bit more of the Marianne side. And, uh, so that's what I came up with. Uh, it, it has turned out to be about the favorite drink that I've ever invented for my wife. She loves it. Um, she calls it blackberry jam in a glass. Uh, none mm-hmm. of the ingredients are blackberry, but they kind of come together that way. Uh, so, so anyway, ginger and Marianne and a mezcal Negroni. I will actually try one of those as well. I'll probably try the rum first, but uh, I'll try the mezcal as well. I got a bottle of bottle of something back there. So, uh, Eric. Anyway, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. I'm I'm gonna uh, take a sip of this now. Yeah, it sounds super compelling. Uh, you're, you're playing with a lot of sort of the uh, spicy, earthy floral notes in there. And and, and I, I like that. I mean, it, it's tough, especially when you're creating a cocktail that has that many ingredients to achieve actual harmony as opposed to harmony in your head. Because like yep. once you've once you've eclipsed sort of a three to four ingredient um, threshold, you, you start trying to fool yourself into thinking that it tastes good. But uh, I love the, the Montmorency cherry thing. Uh, I actually, because of the pandemic, um, we, we manufacture and create cocktail bitters as part of what we do. And um, we had to switch produce providers. And, and the produce provider that I, I switched over to uh, just for logistics reasons so that I could continue to make my stuff uh, offered a whole bunch of stuff. And so Montmorency cherries, when they came into their little peak two week uh, availability in sort of like the mid July range, we, we had about 16 pounds of them, just my, my buddies and I who, who run the company. And, and while we did a production shift at our commercial kitchen, we actually had a couple of us making brandy cherries with these Montmorency cherries. Oh, nice. Just so tart. They're so delicate. And, um, I, I really, I really love them. So, um, those are almost ready to be cracked open now. They've been sitting for about two months in my pantry, just, uh, thinking about what they've done. And so hopefully <laughs> they've absorbed all the goodness of all the spices and, and the, the sugars that we put in there. So I'm excited to crack those open. That's cool. I would normally garnish this with a brandied cherry, but, um, since the pandemic, I have not gone into total wine. I've, I've done the curbside pickup but they don't have the cherries that they carry on their website. And so it's not something I can, I can order. One of these days I'll just mask up and, and go into the store to get a couple of things that they don't have uh, available on the website. But that's normally what I would, what I would put in here. And I got to say, I can see why my wife loves this one. It's uh, it, it is sweet, but it's not uh, 
overly sweet. Um, and it just, it, it tastes like fruit. So good stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan now too. I'm, I may pay for it cause it does have a lot more sugar than I'm used to drinking, but, uh, but what the heck? Yeah. Why not? Special, special interview, special, uh, special drink to go. Yeah, with. absolutely. So Eric, I know that you are, uh, since I've been listening to your podcast for six months or a year now, I know that, uh, you're out on the East coast. Is that where you're from originally? Or are you a transplant? Uh, I was born and raised in a little town in Western Massachusetts called Ludlow. It's uh, exit seven on the pike for those of you who are familiar with Massachusetts. We've, we, th- it's an interesting state in that, um, you know, you, you obviously have Boston as the sort of Eastern focused epicenter of Massachusetts living. And so when you say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what part of Boston are you from? I was like, nah, not, no, it's not, it's not that. You know, so the, 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 there's Boston and then the middle of the state, there's Worcester and then towards the, the, the west and south of the state, there's Springfield, which is the third biggest city in Massachusetts. It's where the Basketball Hall of Fame is, uh, but otherwise there's really nothing to recommend it. It's kind of one of those, um, you know, struggling old mill cities like many cities in Massachusetts, uh, at least in the western part, are. And so I grew up in a direct suburb of Springfield, but I was in sort of the direct suburbs of that suburb. So I actually, uh, I grew up in a, a log cabin, uh, in the middle of the oh, woods. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, just grew up just spending time in a landscape that I can only describe as something that was ripped straight out of a Robert Frost poem. You know, we had those old stone wow. walls kind of just lacing the woods. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad. I grew up um, right next door to both my grandparents and my aunt and uncle. And uh, my grandparents had a big Christmas tree farm and they they grew vegetables and stuff. So it was sort of, a, even though I was out kind of in the boonies compared to a lot of people uh, that I went to school with in town, it was, uh, it was a pretty cool childhood. Uh, I got a lot of um, outdoor time and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty unique. I'm, I, I really appreciate it much more in hindsight than I did when I was uh, sitting there wondering why I didn't have anybody to go and, uh, you know, play baseball with, or, you know, wondering why I was so far out from everything that seemed like my world in high school, you know? No, it sounds pretty idyllic. Um, it, it, you know, appreciating it now more than then kind of reminds me of how I feel about college. Um, I look at college now and think, what a great experience. And I was not a happy kid when I was in college. Uh, mm-hmm. So sometimes you, uh, that happens, you know, in hindsight, you can see things a lot differently. Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess from there, I sort of, I've been making my way from the Northeast to the Mid-Atlantic since then. I, I went to uh, Gettysburg College out of high school, which is um, South Central Pennsylvania. It's literally what you'd expect. It's in the same town as that giant battlefield. And uh, <laughs> it was actually a great school, liberal arts college. I was um, part of the 20% of the student population there that didn't go into uh, Greek life. So I was not in a fraternity or anything like that, even though that was a big thing on campus. Um, but I was wow, able... Wow, 80% of the student body? Yeah, that is a big thing. Yeah, it's big. And it, it's big sort of in the mid-Atlantic. And, you know, especially as you move into the South, um, it's, you know, it's, it's something I, I, I definitely see the benefit uh, to it. But but especially at the time, I, I, I was sort of uh, a little bit averse to it. But I was able to um, on my freshman floor, actually, I, I met my two business co-founders, Ethan and Russell, and um, uh, they have a thing at Gettysburg called first year seminars, where you you pick a thing that's like a little weird, a little bit niche, and and ours was called the Zen of Improv, and so it was an improv <laughs> comedy great. seminar. 
So uh, everybody on on the floor kind of lived and attended that seminar together. And that's kind of how you were supposed to meet people and, and form connections. So that's where I met my two co-founders, Ethan and Russell. And, and we sort of all moved down to uh, the DC area uh, from there. So, but that I met them a dozen years ago now, almost. But, but you didn't go into if I'm uh, so, so tell me what you did go into. Cause um, mm. it's, it's funny hearing that having heard you on the podcast, I know a little bit about your background a little bit. Um, so tell me more about how being in an improv troupe in college uh, morphed into something else. Yeah, it's um, so when I was exiting undergrad, um, it was at the tail end of the housing bubble. And I actually majored in psychology. I thought I wanted to be a counseling psychologist and actually, you know, sit around and and speak with people and, and do talk therapy and stuff like that. I majored in psychology. I minored in um, creative writing. And so what I did was I applied, I kind of split my applications right down the middle when I was uh, applying to grad schools. I applied to half PhD programs in counseling psychology and uh, half master of fine arts programs in creative writing. And ah, uh, I see. Okay. So now I'm seeing a split. I'm seeing a fork in the road here. And it, you know, it was, um, it was partially out of being conservative. It's not like my grades were bad. You know, I, I, I had great grades in, in college, but uh, I, I got accepted into two out of probably 20 grad programs that I applied to. It was just a tough time to go back to get an advanced degree because so many people with existing advanced degrees said, well, I'm not going to be doing anything in this economy. I might as well go back and get an extra degree. And so uh, yeah. instead of competing with people on your playing field, I was competing with people who were sort of a, a level above me. So I was very fortunate to be accepted into the um, Master of Fine Arts program in poetry at the University of Maryland, Maryland College Park, which is just a short drive south of Gettysburg. It's in um, College Park, Maryland, which is a direct suburb of Washington, D.C. And that's how I ended up in this metro area. Um, so I, I attended that program for three years. I taught uh, as, a, as a part of it, I actually you know, got a, a financial aid where it was a free ride as long as I taught courses. So I taught English 101 courses there, uh, which at the University of Maryland, it's a really unique thing. They have a very special rhetorical um, focus to it because it's a state-funded school. And part of the agreement that they signed with the state was that in order to, you know, if you're going to have these, you know, in-state sort of tuition benefits, you, Maryland wanted you to be kicking out kind of good citizens to the state <laughs> of Maryland. So, sure, why not? Uh, it was really cool. I learned, I, I learned rhetoric so that I could teach rhetoric. And, and I think that's been one of the enduring benefits of, of me having attended that program. And then, of course, I was also able to teach creative writing workshops. And I fell in love with it. That's what I would be doing now if, um, you know, it paid any sort of money. I think I would have had to teach like six courses, six or eight courses a year to make $20,000. Wow. And that's a lot of students to go through and give feedback to for, for $20,000 a year. So yeah, no kidding. So, so I'm, I'm curious about the poetry though. So you said that, uh, you, you minored in creative writing. Um, how much of that was poetry when you were an undergrad? And then when you applied to grad school, was it, was was poetry on your mind? I mean, was that something? Was that something that you wanted to focus on? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I I really wanted to get into a PhD program in counseling psychology. I think that was, you know, that was what I really wanted from a um, career standpoint because poets don't have careers. Poets just are poets. Mm -hmm. They do a thing, and then 
you know, something happens, right? So, you know, there's an analog in my industry, my current industry, which is, uh, you know, bartenders like, okay, what's your real job? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so as as a poet, I kind of viewed them differently. I viewed poetry as sort of an academic focus and uh, counseling psychology is more of a vocation that I could do. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's just sort of the way our educational system is set up. But yeah, I had a really... Uh, wonderful study abroad scenario. I, I studied abroad in in the UK in the spring of 2010, and I went to. I was able to go through a program that actually um, worked directly with Oxford University. So I spent a, a semester uh, attending poetry workshops at Oxford, uh, and just through that experience and through a little bit of positive feedback, you know, sometimes that's all you need to really uh, blow a spark into a flame, and so. Um, you know, I'd been writing uh, a good deal. I, I basically filled up any of my course load that, that, that wasn't related to graduating with creative writing courses. And, and so, um, I think that's what, what led me to the university of Maryland. And, and there I was able to work with some, some wonderful people, the late Stanley Plumley, who is, uh, an incredible poet who recently passed away and, and, a, and a bunch of other, uh, amazing writers as well. So, um, you know, th- that time, especially, especially the time I, I got to spend teaching it, which is, which is really kind of a mind bending thing when you're learning it at the same time mm-hmm. and you have to yeah. teach it to people who are maybe five to seven years younger than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, it was really sort of a, a, a high intensity kind of cauldron where a lot of big ideas and, um, sort of approaches to interacting with people in, in, in an idea space were kind of forged in my mind. So I, I had a great time. And if I could still be teaching poetry workshops right now and be paid a living wage to do it, I probably would be. No kidding. That's great. I, I love that, that analogy, you know, blowing a spark into a flame. Um, I, I imagine that there are probably quite a few audiobook narrators who could say the same thing. It's, you know, well, I've been reading all my life and, a lot of people think, well, I can read and that means I can be an audiobook narrator and, and it's not nearly that easy. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of narrators who were like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I could tell a story. I could, I could perform this and I could, I could really tell this story and, and get people interested and they do it once. And they're like, Oh my God, I love this. Um, so that's great. You just, uh, you know, get thrown into something and you find out, uh, Hey, this is really great. I love it. Well, that's cool. So, so, um, that's what you would still be doing, but you're not doing that. And somehow <laughs> you transitioned from, uh, poetry and teaching into, uh, cocktails. How did that happen? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, I met my two co-founders, uh, way back at Gettysburg college and, and we all happened to sort of find, jobs or, you know, sort of advanced education opportunities in the DC area. And my buddy Ethan started making cocktails. He had this crazy idea in his head because he was working in, in the business world, kind of setting himself up for an MBA. He came home one day with a bottle of Johnny Walker black. And he was like, I need to learn how to drink scotch. People who do this sort of thing drink scotch. <laughs> and so I remember that it was this painful bottle of Johnny Walker Black that, that he and occasionally I would join him just kind of suffered through and then evolved. Right. So then we started picking up some bottles, drinking things that weren't cheap beer. And uh, one day he he had a bunch of mason jars on the counter and he was making uh, bitters. I didn't know what bitters were at that point. I wasn't into cocktails. I was actually... Um, the semester that I was wrapping up my uh, Master of Fine Arts in Poetry at the University of Maryland, I knew that I was not going to continue teaching because I got the I got the offer with with the dollar amount from the university. I was like, uh, 
you're crazy if you think this is <laughs> this is livable. So what I did is I actually I took a, a wine course uh, at the at a program called the Capital Wine School here outside of DC, and I, I took that. It was maybe a ten week program once a week, and I would go there, and so I, I was getting into wine. And so my interest in wine sort of dovetailed with this little cooking project or extraction project that my buddy Ethan was doing. And so I tasted it. I was like, oh, we can do better than this, you know? And (laughs) and so we we both started going down rabbit holes. And the next thing you know, uh, I created a website. He filed some paperwork. And very quickly, we found ourselves with a, you know, actually officially registered business. We, we spoke with a company called Union Kitchen here in Washington, DC. And we've been a member of that kind of uh, commercial kitchen food accelerator since about 2015, 2016. We're one of their oldest members at this point. And, um, you know, it just sort of took off from there. And basically what we did is um, we created a, a line of cocktail bitters. It's called Embitterment Bitters. It still is it still exists um even though our company has a different name now but uh basically we we spent um you know three to four years making about eight flavors of different cocktail bitters working with bartenders here in dc to kind of refine the the flavor profiles and um just building connections with uh distillers and and retailers here in the mid-atlantic and um then by the time about 2018 came around i had been doing um since grad school a bunch of marketing jobs uh in the legal space and i'm a miserable person when i'm behind a desk uh uh, a i have i have a a problem with authority in general so i'm not fun to manage and and b i just sort of get stir crazy behind a desk so uh when when we realized that this was not sort of a, a nights and weekends hobby anymore i was like okay uh i'll quit Please, please me, pick me. I'll, I'll quit. Uh, and and that's when uh, we very quickly decided to make the switch to modern bar cart because bitters are great. But one one thing about bitters is that they're not high turnover. So if you go to the store and pick up a six pack of beer, you're going to finish that six pack hopefully within a month. You're not mm-hmm. going to finish your bottle of bitters within a month, within two months, within six months. I mean, maybe if you're me, you'll you'll finish it within six months, but. Um, it's low turnover and it's, uh, I can attest to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got bottles of bitters that I've had for probably a few years at this point. I've got others that turn over a little quicker. Um, Angostura, aromatic, um, chocolate for me. Um, so, uh, and once I learned from, um, from PJ Oakland, a, a narrator who all my listeners know of about, once I learned about the, uh, three bitter Manhattan that he makes, I decided, oh, that was that was what kind of got me more into bitters. Hey, here's something that I can experiment with in small quantities, and it really changes things. And so, um, but yeah, for the most part, uh, not a high turnover in in the the bitters portion of my liquor cabinet. So I totally understand that. Um, so so that was when you went from bitters to modern bar cart. So what is modern bar cart? Yeah. So one thing that that was super important to us uh, right off the bat, we launched in 2015 at this. Um, festival called DC Veg Fest. And we thought we were so smart because, you know, this is a sort of vegetarian vegan convention. We're like, if anybody's going to know what bitters are in 2015, it's going to be all these hippie vegan people (laughs) with their essential oils and all their tinctures and stuff. And that day we spent the entire day explaining what bitters were. So what we realized 
was that even in a targeted selected demographic that we thought was going to be like our bread and butter, we still needed to do so much education. And, and that was um, something that I kind of referred to as a tuning fork ever since. It's something that, you know, continues to ring true is the importance of education. And so um, when we, when we decided to scale up and, and explore doing things that weren't just bidders, uh, we rebranded to Modern Bar Cart with the idea that it was like, well, we're going to help you build your bar cart. We're a city-based company and people around here don't always have the space to have full bars in their homes. Uh, so uh -huh. the, the bar cart idea was kind of attractive to us and we asked somebody to make us a sexy logo. So that was great. And that's when I sort of launched the podcast. Podcasts were getting hot. I had listened to a podcast that has ceased, uh, ceased to publish episodes for the past, like about two, two and a half years called the speaking easy podcast. And I was actually even able to, you know, uh, they were based in DC. So I was able to go and, and actually sit in on and be a guest on one of their episodes. And cool. so I kind of took, took their idea of a podcast and I kind of went off in a completely different format. So, so the early episodes of our podcasts, uh, are sort of, foundational episodes and and I'm right now I'm, I'm sort of considering different ways to reboot them because my audio recording capabilities back then were were not very good I have no background in audio recording I've learned a ton in the 160 plus episodes that we've published since then no doubt yeah but uh but yeah so it's it, it starts off as sort of like a very foundational thing all right we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot of basics in these first 50 episodes and and then as it started to pick up. And as I was able to do a little bit more networking with, again, my distilling community with, uh, you know, authors who are always willing to uh, take a, take an hour and speak with you about a book that they published or are intending to release soon. I started just making connections and, and that's where it kind of grew out of. And, and then in terms of modern bar card itself, um, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is, is be a educational resource for home bartenders. And, and my goal is to stand right in between you, you Rich. I mean, to, to be honest, you're, you're a great example of, of my, my target audience because you're, you're informed, you self-inform, you're interested, you like experimenting, you're not afraid of flavors, and yet you're not a member of this industry. And so what I'd like to be able to do is stand right between someone like you and someone like, you know, a Dale DeGroff or, you know, that's mm. aspirational. Uh, sure, but, yeah. <laughs> so, so, somebody who's somebody who is doing, you know, performing at, at the top of their industry, Lance Winters of uh, St. George Spirit, for example. He is a incredible pioneer in this industry. So I get to stand between people like him who are just incredibly well-versed at what they do and people like you who are interested in that sort of knowledge and parse things out so that there's a smooth transfer of knowledge between the people who are real geniuses and real trailblazers and the people who want to take little snippets of that wisdom and apply it to what they're doing at home. So that's kind of what I think of modern bar card as being. And, and of course, we also sell um, various mixer, you know, curated selection of cocktail mixers, glassware and tools. And, and hopefully we're going to be launching some, some other kits, uh, and, and other fun stuff very soon. Got it. That's cool. So, so the revenue is mostly from the products that you sell. Yes, it's, it's entirely that we actually, uh, started out as a wholesale operation. So we were wholesaling our bidders to retailers across the, the mid Atlantic. So we still do a, a pretty healthy dose of wholesale business. 
Uh, we've done some bespoke projects. So I have custom flavors that we've built for a couple of distilleries in the area. Oh, that's uh, that, very cool. That I, I can imagine that being a, a really challenging but rewarding project where somebody comes to you and says, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And you get to say, ooh, now I'm going to put it all together. Well, it's storytelling with flavor, right? Um, so we worked with oh, uh, Sagamore yeah. Spirit. Uh, it's a big it's a big distillery in the inner harbor of Baltimore. And uh, it's owned by Kevin Plank, the guy who runs Under Armour. And so they they approached us and, and they said, hey, we want to we want a bitters. And they have this really cool story where they actually uh, their barrels age on a farm that used to be owned by the Vanderbilts. The Vanderbilts were big into horse racing. Uh, horse racing is a big thing in Maryland. At least one leg of the Triple Crown it takes place in Maryland. And uh, so what we did was. You know, we said, all right, well, we got to tie this in. So we get the water from that farm. That's what we use to proof down our bitters. We take barrel scrapings from their rye barrels, and we actually do a, a quick overnight infusion with that to kind of marry the flavor of their rye with the flavors of the bitters. And then some of the flavors that we use are, are beautiful rye whiskey complements. So we've got a little bit of chocolate in there. We've got a little bit of grapefruit um, and, and a few other, you know, cinnamon, a few other spices that, that play well with rye. But we also have red clover which is what I would imagine a horse would eat when it is not <laughs> racing, right? So, so awesome. there, there, there's storytelling to be done with flavor, and, and that's why those like bespoke projects are great. But, uh, but yeah, uh, right now, since the pandemic has hit, we're, we're really focusing on e-commerce and, and trying to get uh, you know, really, really important bar tools and glassware in people's hands to the extent that we can source it, because that stuff ain't easy to source these days either. No kidding. Yeah. So I know that there are a lot of problems in a lot of industries getting stuff out there. I can tell you that um, I've spoken to several people, well, spoken or communicated online somehow with several people now who are saying, well, I want to get this mic, uh, whether it's because somebody wants to do podcasting, even though they haven't done it before, or if it's because they're a new audiobook narrator and they said, well, I've got this blue Yeti, but that's just not good enough. And so I really want to get something better. So how does this one look? And I look at it and I said, well, it looks like it'll be great in two months when you can get it because, um, almost everything now that everybody is going online, everybody's trying trying to get mics and, and get better audio quality. And for all I know, it goes much farther back than that. And the manufacturers of the devices and the microphones and whatever it is, they, they don't have people coming into work or they can't get the, the raw materials or whatever it is, but everything is on back order everywhere. Mm -hmm. Indeed. It's a mess. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm, I'm excited now. I will definitely pick up some of the embitterment bitters. I did look at the website and I saw that, uh, one of them that, that I think you've talked about on the podcast quite a few times is, uh, lavender, if I remember correctly. And, mm -hmm. and I don't have a whole lot of experience with, um, I, I guess you would call it the, um, the savory cocktail kind of sphere. Um, I've got a bottle of celery bitters that, I, I think I tried using in something once and it didn't work. And I, so it's still sitting there. Um, so it seems to me that lavender would be a, a good bitters to, to kind of go in that direction. Yeah, it's great with any clear spirits. Um, you know, anything from vodka on the light end, white rum, um, gins, it's incredible with gins. And as you know, you seem to be familiar with the different, you know, types of, you know, styles of gins out there based on what we were talking about earlier but yeah it's um, my favorite things to do with the lavender bitters are simply like in a gin and tonic because those bubbles just bring that lavender right up to you know it's just like an aromatic ah. 
uh, even even without gin, you know, it could just be a, a you know like a lemon lemon seltzer and lavender bitters if you're going light for the day. If you don't want anything boozy, it's it's really nice, um, really great in uh, herbal teas like chamomile tea or a green tea. A couple dashes of that in there. Um, I tend to think about bitters as in a non-cocktail setting is a great way to take hot beverages and, and make them a flavorful beverage, but not high calorie like you would get if you were going to a coffee shop and for example, getting a latte, right? Like a lot of sugar, a lot of fat in that latte. But if you take our chocolate bitters and, you know, you dash a few dash of that in, in your coffee, for example, that's, that's a pretty low fat, just incredibly chocolatey mocha that you've got yourself. And so you can kind of trick yourself into, uh, into a coffee shop experience, even when you're just sitting on the same couch that you've been sitting on since COVID. Yeah. And so I, I can see that about the hot, uh, and that actually makes me think my wife is a big tea drinker. And so it actually makes me think, um, I'll, I'll suggest that when winter comes around, uh, here in Tucson, no hot beverages right now, but, um, it kind of reminds me of what I do sometimes, which is like you said, if you want to go light for the day, what I'll do is, um, fill up a, a Collins glass with ice, squeeze a, a half a lime into it, uh, put in, uh, three or four dashes, quite a bit of either orange or cranberry or cherry bitters and fill it up with uh, sparkling water. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that's like, it's, it's just nicer than opening the bottle of sparkling water and just drinking it. It's like, Hey, I'm having a drink now, you know? Um, so it's just something a little bit different. Totally. Yeah, no, that's, that's very cool. Um, well, well, that's cool. So, um, clearly, even though it, it may not have been the plan originally, you're, you're quite the entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, my grandfather was, was a small business guy. Uh, it's funny. I, I had nothing in common with him as a kid because he was a mechanic. He was, um, he was in France after uh, World War II doing uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, helping to build up the infrastructure after all of that. And um, he was from Quebec originally. So uh, he, he immigrated to the, to the U.S. to join the U.S. military. And, um, you know, he came back and he, he started garages. He, he, he was a mechanic. And then he had a couple of garages. He started this Christmas tree farm. They, they were also actively farming and doing farm stands and stuff like that. So he was, he has this sort of like entrepreneurial mindset and I, I didn't really appreciate it as much until I started doing my own venture. And, and then I started really seeing where I could kind of appreciate his approach to things. It was very old world actually. And I would sort of consider myself and, and one or two other people that I that I know and work with closely in this area as having that old world um, kind of approach to the thing. It's very much quality first. It's very much you know you put your you put your name on what you do, and if you're putting your name on what you have out there, if somebody says it's not up to par, then it's you know it's on you to go out there and, and make it right. So um, it's not as you know DC is a big a big market and there's a lot of distillers and a lot of entrepreneurs in our space who are sort of competing very hard for a lot of the market share. And uh, I see it as being sort of like a, uh, a very new world style of, of doing business in, in that it's, uh, all right, what's the, what's the next big shiny thing that we all need to attack before the rest of them get to that big new shiny thing. Yep. And I, I'm just not interested in that. I'm interested in, in education. I, I turned down a lot of, um, a lot of correspondents trying to get me to, you know, either advertise for, for some new sexy brand or to, uh, to kind of, you know, give a positive review to, uh, 
you know, a, a really silly thing and, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's tough to turn down the money, but it's, uh, but I think it's important to what we do. I think it's, it's part of the identity and I think that's, it's, it's already starting to pay off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an integrity thing. It's, it's, you've, you know, you've got your, your space and, and you're carving out whatever it is that you're carving out and doing some things, uh, might be expedient, but wouldn't necessarily be good in the long run. Yeah, for sure. Totally get that. Yeah. So, um, so you said earlier that, that you've, uh, listened to a few audiobooks. So since this, this is the audiobook speakeasy, uh, what have you listened to? Uh, even if, you know, whether it's a, a, a specific title or just a, a type of audiobook, uh, what do you listen to? Why, why have you listened to audiobooks? Was it a commuting thing or just be, just for, uh, enjoyment? Like somebody would just read a book at night. Uh, what did you like? What didn't you like? Well, I, I would say that I came to audiobooks through podcasts. I, there, there were certainly a couple of audiobooks that I listened to back in the day in CD format. Back yeah, when when yeah. vehicles had that capacity, that yeah, little that little slot. They're still, actually, they're still making them. Uh, they're getting rarer and rarer, but they're still making them. <laughs> Well, for context, my vehicle still has a cassette slot in it, and, uh, oh, and wow. so yeah, yeah, it's C- a good old 20, cassette, 2014 cassette, Nissan a, Maxima. It was like the last year they put a cassette in it. Cassette, that's a uh, oh, that that's a little plastic thing with tape inside it, right? I think there's tape inside. <laughs> I don't know. I only ever got the adapter that plugged into the uh, the AC outlet. Oh yeah, but, I had one uh, of those too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so so I, I've listened to you know the, some of the traditional audiobooks, but um, since in we'll, we'll call it the past you know, five, five years or so, um, you know, I, I started with podcasts. I, I started getting into podcasts because I was working those soulless legal marketing office jobs, and I needed <laughs> something to. Uh, to distract me from, from how little was getting accomplished in my life. And so I would just listen to audiobooks when I was, um, or podcasts while I was at work. And that slowly moved to YouTube where there are some like pirated versions of some audiobooks on YouTube. And I was like, ah, oh, all right, great. A longer form thing, right? If it's a particularly rough week, you know, there's this sort of direct correlation between how bad your week is and how deeply you want to escape from it. So mm-hmm. in those weeks <laughs> that were just miserable, I'd be like, all right, well, let's, let's immerse ourselves in a fantasy thing. And I, I, I grew up reading, um, uh, Tolkien. I'm a huge Tolkien nerd and, um, uh, via Lloyd Alexander, which is sort of fantasy light, but also very well-written fantasy light. And then, um, uh, I started reading a little bit more serial fantasy or the sort of Dungeons and Dragons style thing, even though I've never played a game of D&D in my life. Mm-hmm. I started um, reading this this series called the uh, like the Legend of Drizz. The, the, the author is R.A. Salvatore. And those were sort of the the pulp fiction things I would listen to via audiobook when I was working those legal jobs in between podcasts. And recently... I've listened to uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance on audiobook. Ooh, I've wow. tried to listen to some of the some of the other fantasy books by by an author named Terry Brooks, whom I very much enjoy. And uh, the the big thing that I'm I'm running into is uh, I use a program called Libby, which is you know, through public libraries. And sure, yeah. I just never have time to finish the audiobook. I get three quarters through then my subscription runs out. And for whatever reason, everything that I'm listening to, somebody behind me wants. So I get three quarters of the way through and then it's gone. And uh, I scream into the void and and move on to the next thing. 
No, I understand that. That is a, a downside with the library. I think that it's great that the library is an option. Um, Jen get my wife Jenny gets most of her books. Um, she's not a listener, but she is a reader, has been forever, and um, she checks out most of her books digitally from the library. And that is a problem. The selection isn't fantastic. And it's also, um, there are some books where there's like 20, 30, 50 people waiting for that book. And so you get in line and a year later it becomes available and you're like, oh, I forgot about that. I, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I could read that. Yeah. So, um, I can see how that could be a problem. If you want to listen to something, you get three quarters of the way through. Now you got to stand in line to hear the last quarter of the book. By the time you get there, you want to listen to the, you know, most of it again. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I also do the thing where I listen to it falling asleep. Uh, mm. and, and so it's, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not two steps forward, one step back. It's, it's like, five steps forward, six steps yeah. back to get to the place where you remember yep. starting to listen into it. So it's, it's, it's a little bit silly. I mean, but I do, you know what I, I will tell you, I, I do appreciate audiobooks in, uh, in that it's an immersive experience. And there's, there's a couple of books that are really important to me that sort of like rewired the way that I, that I think about things. And, and, uh, I, I do find myself wishing that I could find a good audiobook available for those specific texts for sure. Got it. Yeah. Well, someday, I mean, if you ever want advice on setting up a studio, just let me know and I'll tell you everything you need to know about getting stuff ready so that you can narrate the books that, uh, that are important to you. Um, That's I don't absolutely. remember the titles. You, I know that you mentioned them in, in our email, but I don't remember the titles. What were those? Yeah, it was, uh, there's two books. Uh, the first one that I think I came across is one called Invisible Cities. It's by uh, an Italian slash Cuban author. He's, his parents were Italian and Cuban. And so he spent time in both places uh, named Italo Calvino. And it's a book called Invisible Cities. And uh, the the thrust of the book, like the concept of the book is that it's a conversation between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan the Mongol ruler. And, uh, and, and basically, uh, Kublai Khan calls on Marco Polo to tell him about his empire. Kublai Khan has not seen his empire. And so, okay, this, this man who has traversed the, the, the length and breadth of it must tell me about it. And very quickly, what becomes apparent is that, uh, every city that Marco Polo tells Kublai Khan about is, is a metaphor for something that they don't actually exist. And, you know, so you have the city that's on stilts that represents isolationism. You have, you know, oh, wow. uh, just, and it's not always as on the nose as that there's one city that's basically just plumbing and, you know, you're, 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 uh, encouraged to explore why there is just plumbing. Did the rest of the city crumble and there's just plumbing left or did it, did a series of nymphs and naiads and inherit inhabit the, the waterworks of this city and keep it alive? You know, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's a very playful, very articulate and very, um, immersive read. And, and these cities, they're only about a page, page and a half long. So you'll get like maybe a chunk of like eight to 10 cities. And then you'll have like this interlude where it talks about like this little game that Marco Polo and Kublai Khan are playing with each other. And Kublai Khan very quickly embraces this game. So it's this beautiful sort of um, inquiry into what it means to be together as human beings and, and, and the structures that we build both between each, between one another and within ourselves. And it's, um, it's beautiful. It's, it, 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 it crosses the line between poetry and, and fiction, to be honest. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to it, but, but it really, it, it, it 
encourages you to, to question form, right? Because it's like, hmm, you've never really read anything quite like this. Uh, but it also really, it's really tender. It's really caught up in the details. And um, you can easily get lost in the space of a page, page and a half, which is something that I've just really not seen uh, accomplished in too many other places outside of poetry. That sounds really cool. Um, so that was... Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. So that sounds really cool. Um, there is an audiobook of that. It was done in 2013 by Tantor, uh, narrated by John Lee. I'm not familiar with with John Lee's work, but very prolific narrator, as far as I can tell. Um, mm. It'd be interesting to see what you would think of that um, in audio, since it was so meaningful to you in print. And I know that mm. there are a lot of people who both read a book and then listen to the same book, and you get different things out of it. Um, so, so that would be interesting. Yeah, I definitely want to. Um, I, in, in our email, I think I think you mentioned that there was one. I, I'll have to seek that out because, you know, I, I have a feeling it's going to be one of those scenarios where it's tough to listen to because you have your own expectations. Sure. You know, the same way yeah. that I felt when the Lord of the Rings came out. Oh, yeah. Like, How could you omit Tom Bombadil? Come <laughs> on. Ooh, let's not uh, go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I know. Hey, hey, I'm, genuinely good decision, but still, you know. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I'm I'm a huge Tolkien fan, too. I think I've read Fellowship probably eight or ten times at this point, and the other ones in decreasing numbers as the series goes on, um, because I found that the first book was always the best and the, and the most engaging. Um mm. So, uh, so yeah, I, I've, I've seen a lot of those, uh, debates online about the, the book to the, to the film. Of course, when you've only got 12 hours or so to do a book, that's a thousand pages, it's tough, but, uh, right. anyway, anyway, uh, it, it, it might be a difficult experience. You might love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I fully intend to check it out. I mean, I've got some obviously holiday travel coming up and, um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'll, I'll get on that train. I, I feel like I'm probably not going to have to fight too many people to get to Invisible Cities. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or you could, uh, just use the Audible app and get a one-off book. Aud Audible really pushes the subscription, but if you're the kind of person who's only going to listen to a book once every six months or once a year or once every three months, even, um, it, it doesn't make financial sense to do that. It makes more sense to simply buy a book and, and it's a lot cheaper than doing a subscription for six or 12 or forever. Um, sure. And so, then I guess you get to keep it, right? You do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's bonus. Yeah. So, uh, so then you wouldn't run into the, uh, three quarters of the way through the book problem. <laughs> and, and that is, that's my biggest problem. So I think I'll take your advice on that. Yeah. Yeah. Just pick up that one book. Um, like I said, I can't speak to, uh, John Lee's work, but he's quite prolific. Uh, Tantor puts out a lot of, a lot of audiobooks. just did something for them recently. Um, good company. So, uh, my guess is, and it's got good ratings. So my guess is it's, uh, it was well done. Nice. So, nice. All right. So uh, normally towards the end of my, my episodes, I ask my guest, my guest. so um, what advice would you have for, for narrators out there? And in this case, you're not a narrator. You're not a, you're not a coach. On the other hand, you're in business. And the fact is that what a lot of narrators don't, what a lot of voice actors for that matter, don't realize when they start on their voice acting journey is that you are now running a business. Uh, unless you have somebody to do it for you, which is extremely rare, um, you are now running your own business. Well, no, I'm just an actor. I'm I'm going to be doing the acting. Yes, but you have to run your business. And that's very true in audiobooks, just as it is in other voice acting genres, just as it is in other acting formats as well. Um, and so uh, the fact is that 
even though you're not a narrator, you're not a coach, you have started businesses, uh, you've learned things along the way. So my, my question this time is a little more broad instead of what advice would you have for narrators out there? What advice would you have for somebody out there who is starting a business or running a business that they've had going for six months or a year or two years, whatever it is. And uh, maybe they're kind of struggling. Maybe they're trying to figure out how to move forward. Uh, what, what advice do you have on the, on the business side? It's funny because uh, both my, my wife and my two business partners all have MBAs. And uh, my two business partners, uh, like I said, we're, we're, we're friends from, from improv way back and, and we spend a lot of time joking. So they would certainly never admit that uh, what I've done in any way eclipses their MBAs that they pay dearly for. But my wife has told me that, um, you know, she's, she's here. We're, we're literally office mates right now during, during COVID. And, and she obviously had a great deal to, to do with um, the business uh, for the, the previous amount of time before we were all locked down. And, and she's told me many times, like, Man, it's you get a you get a better business degree doing what you do than you do sitting in a classroom, and and she's she's done it. Trial by fire. Yeah, certainly that. I mean, uh, in terms of entering into entrepreneurship, I think the thing that has served me best is my comfort with discomfort. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a a risk immune person. I'm I'm painfully aware of the risks that I'm taking when I take a, a risk in the business world. Um, I think the difference is I'm willing to sit with that discomfort in a way that I don't think a lot of people are, are able to and, and still enjoy their life. And that's, that's a big consideration. You have to really, really think about your relationship with risk. Um, especially entering into COVID about 70% of our wholesale clients just have not made a purchase since COVID. And that's a significant chunk of our operating revenue, to be honest. I mean, we got lucky in that I had a trademark deadline for April 30th of 2020 to make sure that I got different categories of glassware and bar tools on my site to make sure that those were covered and protectable under our trademark. And so in that respect, I was very lucky to have a, a robust e-commerce site that had bar tools, mixers, glassware, and, and people you know, really responded to that, that, that was luck. Um, but I wouldn't have gotten to that point if I wasn't comfortable running the risk. And, and the way that I feel is, I don't know if you've ever been on a highway, like a three, three lane highway, and you've got one, you know, big rig truck in the left lane and one big rig truck in the light, the right lane, and they're not going very fast. And you've just got to get past these trucks. Sometimes the way it feels with risk is just a prolonged traverse of two big rig trucks on either side of you. And you're sitting there white knuckling the wheel, trying to stay exactly in your lane, not trusting that either one of them is going to stay in their lane. It's profoundly uncomfortable. And I'd say my biggest piece of advice is, is to, to get comfortable with discomfort. If you're going to go into entrepreneurship, um, there's so many little lessons along the way that are, that are difficult to, transmute across disciplines. So I'm a little bit hesitant to give, you know, that sort of advice, but uh, I, I, I would say, 
Um, <laughs> a lot of it ends up being in, uh, running through walls in the early phases instead of running around them. If you've ever seen uh, Casino Royale, uh, the opening scene is Daniel Craig chasing a guy through a construct, uh, construction site in, I believe it's somewhere in Madagascar. And there's this moment where this guy like parkours over this wall and then there's a pause for like two seconds. And then you just see Daniel Craig run straight through it. And it's not <laughs> sexy. It's, but it's, but it's a complete, like completely valid solution. It's just painful. So, um, you know, I, I think the advice that I have to offer really relates to your, your personal uh, comfort with, with being uncomfortable. And part of that is also solving for the financial side of things. So I'm, I'm lucky to have a wife who has a great job and, and is able to kind of sustain us. We lived in a really crummy apartment in DC for way too long, just to save up enough money to be able to do this. And, you know, that's also part of the discomfort as well. So, uh, it ain't going to be quick for most people. And, um, I, I guess, uh, yeah, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I love that. I, I think that is so true. Um, and you're right, it ain't going to be quick. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, Modern Bar Cart, actually, when I was speaking with Ann Richardson, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago. And and I said I loved it because you had a guest on who was, um, I don't remember who it was, but but they were talking about the fact that they're in the, in the cocktail industry and um, uh, the people come up to them and, and they get to take these trips and they go across to foreign countries and, you know, they do all these things. And, and somebody was saying, but, uh, so, you know, how do you, how, how is it that you did that so fast? And they're like, well, uh, so for 15 years, this is what I did. And, uh, so it took a while. Um, so I, I love the fact that, um, that advice is I think goes across industries. It's um, you know um, overnight success is usually it usually takes ten or twenty years, and you just yep. don't you just don't see those years. Precisely. Anyway, anyway, great advice. Uh, getting comfortable with discomfort. That's good. That's mm -hmm. good. Um, so at the end of your podcast, you have lightning round questions where you ask people in the spirits industry uh, a few questions, but they always get to answer, but I never get to hear what you have to say. So I'm really interested in your answers to your own questions about your work in spirits. So, uh, so I'm going to start out. Your first question is always, uh, what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you've been more recently obsessed with? Clearly you like Negroni's. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I mean, the, well, so this, this is, this is a perfect segue because the Negroni is a equal parts cocktail. Um, they call that in, in the industry, that language, that, that language would be, uh, a perfect ratio. Mm. Uh, so a perfect Manhattan, for example, would be a regular Manhattan with two ounces of whiskey, but then a, uh, equal amount of sweet and dry vermouth, for example. So it's that the perfect ratio is the half and half sweet and dry. Mm -hmm. So, um, my favorite cocktail is the last word. Oh, uh, no, is, last word. Oh, uh, it's crazy, right? So it's this eerie, spooky green color. It's equal parts gin. I'm a gin guy. Um, DC is a gin city, so I'm lucky in that respect. So equal <laughs> parts gin, uh, maraschino liqueur, green chartreuse, which is this wonderful um, European alpine liqueur produced by monks in the um, sort of foothills of the Alps in central, um, France. I was actually supposed to be here, be there in September, 
that like, literally this month, if not for COVID. So um, COVID travel uh, problems. Yeah, hopefully next year we'll we'll make it out to chartreuse, uh, and then finally um, lime juice. So it's usually one ounce of each. You shake it up in a cocktail shaker because it's got citrus. Generally, you're gonna want to shake cocktails that have citrus in them. You strain it into a stemmed cocktail glass, and then you generally garnish with one of those nice brandied cherries that we were speaking about earlier. So I love it because you know the first time I tasted green chartreuse, it was almost like seeing a new color with my tongue. So like. Uh, if, if you're, if you're a person who thinks they have a relatively sheltered palate, but you, you want to explore, just go pick up a bottle of green chartreuse and it's going to feel like a bit of an acid trip to your senses. <laughs> um, so Absolutely. yeah, that, that's my favorite cocktail. I love it. So, so those are great. I, I will, um, ask you to try something and then let me know what you think of it. I came up with something. So I had a last word, I think it was a week or two ago. Also, a drink that a guest of mine chose to have without knowing that I was a big fan of The Last Word about 20, ah. 30 episodes ago. Julia Whalen had one of those. So I created something uh, a couple of weeks ago that I'm calling the penultimate word, which is <laughs> uh, it's not equal parts. So what I did was uh, two ounces of gin, one ounce of lime juice, and then half an ounce each of the other two. And what I found was it made it less sweet, which appealed to me. Um, it, it was more along the lines of closer to a traditional sour, uh, 833 or 211, something like that. Uh, so try that sometime and let me know what you think of that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a total, like you just took, you just took an equal parts cocktail and turn it into a classic sour, but with a lot more complexity. That's a great move. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was fun. All right. So if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Hmm. Ingredient. Um, you know, I, th I think I'd have to be bitters. Uh, at this point, I've spent too much time working with bitters not to be bitters. Um, but there, <laughs> when, there's, when you there's create a, your own, it, it does make sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's a density to it, right? You know, like, uh, and there's, um, there, there's. Yeah, I also appreciate the the medicinal tradition with bitters. Um, what most people don't know, and what most people don't appreciate about cocktails, you know, we're, we're in an age when people are throwing a little bit of shade on cocktails, and they're like, "Oh, alcohol is not healthy for you." It's like, well. Okay, you know, we, we've got science to back that up. Like that's, I'm like, I'm not disputing the fact that alcohol has calories and that they're mostly empty calories, uh, at least for your body. Uh, I, I don't think that they're necessarily empty calories for your brain, depending on how you consume them. But um, <laughs> cocktails come from a almost entirely medicinal tradition and bitters are at the heart of that medicinal tradition. And, and you know, I, I did probably, you know, if, if I were to direct your listeners to any one of my deep dive sort of audio essays that I've recorded, I would I would direct them toward one that's called um, Mocktail is Not a Dirty Word. And, and in that, you know, one of the things I talk about is, um, you know, like there's this fallacy that cocktails aren't healthy because like the, the word cocktail is like literally like it refers to a, a, a slightly naughty practice called figging or feeging where people who were trying to sell a horse that was maybe a little older than they had marketed it as would take a clove of ginger and then insert it into the nether regions of said horse, which would then lo and behold, cause it to cock its tail and prance about as if it was young again. And yikes, right? So maybe, <laughs> maybe not pleasant, but, but uh, cocktails were often drunk in the morning during the 19th century. And it was again, people who didn't have as, as good of nutrition and information as we do nowadays. But like, let's, let's not forget that co cocktails do come from a tradition of making you feel better. 
and and so that that's that's why I like the the tie in there with bitters and and um, just how those were used as medicine for millennia before we got to where we are today. So yeah, bitters. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think for me it would be chocolate bitters just because I love chocolate. I'll have to send you a bottle of ours. I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, no, I'd I'd love to try it. I because um, I love dark chocolate and bitters are bitter, and so it seems like a perfect marriage to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll get you a bottle. Cool. So if you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? And what would you drink? Well, I would love to have one without Italo Calvino, who I answered mm. <laughs> earlier. But uh, but I think for the purposes of the pure question, I would have to choose a guy by the name of Jean-Antoine Brias Savarin, who was uh, he was basically a French culinary ben franklin who lived i would say contemporaneously with ben franklin for at least a portion of their respective lives he was uh he lived in the the late 1700s early 1800s in france and he he was a judge i think he was a judge actually in central france not too far from chartreuse i think he had some vineyards there that got converted to the public uh ownership once the um once uh, the the monarchy was toppled for a brief time there, but he um, he wrote extensively about flavor. He wrote the sort of definitive work on flavor uh, and and taste and and gastronomy at that time. It was called um, the Physiology of Taste, and uh, this the long subtitle was Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy. And he talks about wow. some of the craziest things that you would see in like the court of Louis the 14th or probably at his time, it was probably Louis the 15th or 16th. And then he was also there for the birth of the restaurant, you know, oh, wow. like in the early 1800s. So he saw like literal Roy, like he literally attended banquets at Versailles. Then he got exiled because whatever regime didn't like his family. Then he went <laughs> to the colonies. He actually, just like Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin went to France, he visited the United States saw what the colonists were doing in the United States at that time, or, you know, colonial America, the various things that they were cooking and imbibing there. And then he came back to France and, and compiled all of his thoughts. And it, it's a incredible work. It's, it's literally the definitive first edition of anything that uh, speaks in a modern way about flavor. Obviously we have Roman texts and lots of recipe books from the middle ages and earlier that have survived, but this is really the first modern take on flavor because it straddles that time of royal banquets and literally what the restaurant is and evolved to be today so it's, it's an incredibly important work and he was a crazy dude he liked <laughs> some weird stuff that's very cool uh i've never heard of him and i doubt that i'd be able to pronounce his name correctly anyway so uh <laughs> that's very cool all right so um at this point in your career it's hard for me to believe that you actually have one but what's a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why I do have this. I do have one, and it's sort Still, of really. Uh, it, it's based on principle. Not to say that I wouldn't try it uh, if it if it were served up to me. It's just I, I I don't feel compelled to go out of my way for it because I know at some at some point I will taste this. But it's uh it it is um, amaretto, which is a almond based liqueur, uh, generally made in Italy. The the big commercial brand out there is called Di Sarono. Sure, yeah, and. The reason why I've never tasted this is because when I was in high school, there were these commercials that ran for Di Sorono, and it was like a man and woman riding on a horse on the beach, 
and then there was a villa and then there was a slow motion shot of some brown liquid being poured over ice and then there was this disembodied voice just whispering <laughs> and i never understood what this liquid was there was no explanation offered it was clearly not being marketed to me as a teenage boy and so i was like this is some weird topical is it like is it cologne are you supposed to drink it and so <laughs> I've just never been drawn to amaretto, even though I'm sure it can be done well. Like anything in the spirits world, it can be done well. I don't know if Di Serrano is done well or it's not, but uh, but yeah, I think their mark, their early marketing campaign from you know 15 years ago is probably uh, what's what's holding me back right now from going out and running running to the liquor store to purchase a bottle. That's hysterical. Um, so yeah, it can be done well. I think that Di Serrano is good. I'm not sure. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's not the best, but it is the most popular, most famous. Uh, sure. my wife loves an amaretto sour she had never yep. had one before we were i don't remember if we were married yet or not i don't think we were married yet we went out at one point i said oh no these are great amaretto sour so i had one and she really liked it well at one point i learned so anything that's called a sour in a restaurant means that they throw in sweet and sour mix which is a bunch of chemicals high fructose corn syrup uh color agents you know i don't really want that right so what I learned was for sweet and sour, you don't really have to use sweet and sour mix. You just need a sour. And so I make really simple amaretto sours, two parts amaretto, one part lemon juice. That's it. I figured the amaretto is sweet enough on its own to where I don't need to add any sugar. And she loves it that way. So, um, yeah, that's that's really interesting that you've been in spirits for so long and that amaretto, which is a, a fairly popular liqueur, is is one that you haven't had. Um, I would have to say for that one, uh, Velvet Falernum is something that I have never had. Mm -hmm. And I've actually got it on my list the next time I get stuff because when I realized, you know, I've never had this and I see it mentioned in so many current, like, you know, really current cocktails that are that are out there and on menus. Um I don't know what this is. I should really find out. Maybe I'll hate it. Maybe I'll want to put it in something. Maybe Jenny will like it in something. Uh, so I've actually got it on the list, but I've never had that. Yeah, it's a really beautiful textural component to a, a lot of rum and tiki drinks. And uh, I'd say try a commercial brand and then... If you like it but don't love it, consider making your own because there's so many knobs and dials you can turn. It's basically a, a sweet and bitters, right? It's it's a it's an infused syrup with a bunch of different spices and ingredients in it. And so if you if you'd like something or dislike something about the commercial brand, then it's very easy to make it home. And and if you do the right things, um, in terms of like the syrup making, like keeping the bricks high enough, which means like having enough sugar in there to keep it stable in the fridge and stuff. And it'll last for quite a long time. Um, so it's, and, and the ingredients generally aren't too crazy. It's like things like ginger and lime and allspice berries that you can pick up at the store. So, uh, oh, but yeah, it's, it's great. Sounds like it would go good with rum. Um, that, yeah. that actually sounds like a lot of fun to me. We've actually made several liqueurs now, a berry liqueur, a chili liqueur, a coffee liqueur. So we've, we've made a few. And so that, that would actually appeal to me. Um, so I will try it and then I'll see what I think. And if I don't, I'll look up some recipes and see what I can tweak. So thanks for the advice. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so what's an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits and cocktail space? Does it seem weird having these questions parroted back to you when you've said them so many times to other people? <laughs> a, a little bit, a little bit, but it's like I've said them so many times that it, uh, it's okay. I'm like, oh, okay, we're just going with this. Um, 
Yeah, I, I this is probably the one that I would struggle the most with because I probably have a bunch of really esoteric specific ones, which are really not all that interesting. But the, the one that I do have in, in a general sense is that I'm more interested in base distillates than I am in barrel aged products. And what I mean mm. by that might not be what it sounds like. It's not that I don't enjoy bourbon. It's not that I don't enjoy really good barrel aged products. I love the flavor profiles. You can't make, you know, like a beautiful old fashioned without a nice bourbon or a rye. But what I am interested in more so are the aspects of production and terroir that are set in motion before that spirit touches a barrel. So whether it's the terroir of the ingredients um, selected uh, or the fermentation that takes place, the, there's so much that goes on beyond our level of perception in spirits, specifically in the microbial landscape, the, the interplay between bacteria and yeast that create these esters and all these chemical compounds that create those flavor notes that we so love in spirits. That happens all sub-perception. Uh, sub and and um, so I'm really interested in those in those decisions. And I would much rather... If, if I were with a distiller, I would much rather taste the thing that's coming right off the still than I would taste the thing that comes out of a barrel after eight years. Because, yes, there's a ton of art in that. Yes, you there's I mean, I, hats off to all those seller masters and master blenders out there because their jobs are way harder than um, I think my palate could ever uh, step up to, to handle. But. Uh, I'm just interested in the stuff that sets the stage for that, that most people aren't um, giving its proper credit. Because if you go on like bourbon um, forums, you'll see people who are talking about like, oh, like tons of caramel, tons of vanilla, tons of this. And I'm like, all you're talking about is wood right now. You're mm -hmm. not even really making reference to the juice that made that. And, and, you know, part of that is to credit like modern whiskey distillers. They have found ways to make a completely consistent spirit. But what I'm more interested in is the single village mezcals that are using these wild harvested agaves that have been sitting there for 20 years, soaking up the terroir of the soil. I'm interested in my friend, Chase Babcock, who runs a completely charitable, um, Claren, brand out of Haiti that, that that dumps all of their profits back into the people of Haiti who are harvesting these special cane varietals, open fermenting them in vats in the fields where they're harvesting this cane and then distilling them into these incredibly unique spirits. Wow. Those are the types of things that I'm interested in. And I'm not saying that the other stuff's not interesting. It's just that I think the barrel is fetishized. And I think, you know, when I see people having conversations about like those flavor notes, that are just barrel, 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 barrel. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, been there, done that. You guys have fun. I'm going to be over here with the rum guys. <laughs> no, I, I totally hear you. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by both ends, actually, both the, you're just talking about wood, but how did that happen? How did, how did the wood actually get in there and make those flavor notes? But I'm also fascinated by what goes on on the front end. And if I had, uh, if I had my druthers and I could go back to school for anything, it would be for chemistry just because I would want to understand all the chemistry behind distilling, you know, base spirits like that. Dude, that you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could, you know, you know, I, I, I can, I can smell clove and tell you that's eugenol, 
But if you put me in front of a blackboard and said, okay, draw Eugenol, like, you know, I, I draw a smiley face and walk away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I, I totally hear you. That's, that's great. Well, thank you for answering your own lightning round questions. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Eric, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to? Um, I can certainly recommend the Modern Bar Cart podcast. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, the podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. You can download uh, or stream for free pretty much anywhere. We don't do uh, ads or really any of that sort of stuff because we monetize by selling our, our products on the website, which is modernbarcart.com. Um, if you are, I don't imagine most of your listeners would be, but if anyone has a friend or a parent or something like that who only listens to things like from a desktop computer, if you go to our show notes page, we you can stream every episode directly from the show notes page by just clicking the play button there. So we're very accessible. Um, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Modern Bar Cart. We don't do the Twitter thing um, because we couldn't get our desired handle uh, and because <laughs> Twitter is toxic. So um, not, yeah. not a huge loss there. Uh, but you can, you can also um, stalk me personally on Instagram at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. And uh, other than that, uh, modernbarcart.com, we have, like I said, a curated selection of cocktail mixers. Uh, right now, the two brands that we carry besides Embitterment Bitters are people that I work with on a weekly basis. So I know the names of the people who make this stuff. So it's all good. It's all excellent quality. And then in terms of glassware and bar tools, we've got a, we're, we're building that out as well. And, and um, you know, despite the sourcing issues in the pandemic, I, you know, we're, we're optimistic about uh, the quality and, and, and the, the stuff that we have out there, we really believe in. So if you're looking to stock your home bar, then um, that's, that's where to find uh, what you need. And um, podcast at modernbarcart.com is, is where you can reach me via email. It's one of half a dozen emails that syncs to my phone every day. So. Well, that's very cool. Um, I, I will, I, I definitely once again, uh, recommend the, the podcast. Uh, like I said, not sure where I heard of it first, but, uh, as soon as I listened to one, I thought, oh, that deserves my attention. And then the more I listened to, the more I thought this is great. Uh, I like your current series, uh, breaking, what is it? Breaking bloody. Yeah. Because uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I decided, uh, you know what? I should figure out how to make a bloody Mary. I've never had one. And so I started and then I stopped. And so listening to your series now kind of makes me think I got to get back into that and try to figure out how to do this. Uh, so uh, interesting stuff. And you have great guests. Uh, I love hearing about it. And like I said, now I follow one of your recent guests, uh, Elaine Duff, and uh, mm -hmm. she has a lot of in industry news in her podcast. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting stuff. Uh, especially during the pandemic, which has changed everything. And I know that a lot of people in the hospitality industry, in uh, in restaurants and bars are having a really hard time. Um, so yep. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good to hear about what's happening and potentially what's going to help dig them out of the hole that they're, they're now in. For sure. For sure. And if there's one, there's actually one thing that I, I just want to list this as a resource for anyone who thinks they might want to get into cocktails after this is tales of the cocktail on uh, stick a dot org after that. And that's how you get to their website, but they're actually, uh, it's a, it's a conference that happens live every year and they're going completely digital this year. And right now they're rolling out a ton of offerings of all the seminars that you would otherwise have to pay uh, quite a bit of money to attend. And so that's all offered for free. So if you go to tales, the cocktail.org, 
uh, especially in in the weeks uh, following when this is published, you'll be able to stream for free like a ton of awesome seminars and educational stuff that, that they're offering. So if, if this is exciting and you like the podcast, then I might su- suggest as the next step in your nerdy deep dive into cocktails that checking out Tales of the Cocktail for sure. I know I already have. I And I, I would recommend anybody else do that too. So I, I checked them out and I signed up for the list for when things going to happen. Um, I'll be aware of it. So Eric, thanks again. This is great. Thanks so much for coming into the, uh, the audiobook speakeasy, speakeasy nonetheless. And, uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Eric Koslick for coming in and discussing cocktails and the spirits world. I really enjoyed the conversation, especially his thoughts on owning and operating a small business. And I hope you did too. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, no charge to my patrons tonight. But again, a big thank you to my martini-level sponsors Squeaky Cheese Productions and Raven Rain, narrated by Bill Lord, available now on Audible. And to all my other sponsors as well, you all make this show possible. Next episode, we'll be right back in the middle of the audiobook world. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the Audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!